The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Over the past two years, Forgotten TV has become a leading authority on obscure TV from the 70s and 80s, earning public and private compliments from several entertainment industry professionals. This podcast is extremely well-researched, and many shows are the result of 50 or more hours of work. As a result, I've uncovered little-known or previously unknown facts about TV from this era, such as obtaining exclusive, never-before-seen pictures of the Highwayman toy prototypes, and tracking down the current location of the Highwayman truck. Finding an actress from the Fantastic Journey did not die in the 70s, as most sites claim and reporting the real author of the original story Time Travelers and the Time Tunnel were based on, who never received credit for his story, and more. I've also invested in better sound equipment, and with this podcast, you should notice an improvement of sound quality. During this time, the podcast has had no advertising, and has only averaged about $5 a month in affiliate revenue. This year, like many, I have a surprise tax bill I will be paying out for months. Your support is greatly appreciated, and with it, I hope to bring you the podcast for years to come. You can now support the podcast on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month and become a producer of Forgotten TV. If you don't use Patreon, you can make a one-time or recurring donation using PayPal. Links to all of this are right here in the show notes, or easily seen at Forgotten.tv. This episode of Forgotten TV was brought to you by executive producer Greg Blanchard. Thank you for your support of Forgotten TV. Did you hear? Gene Roddenberry died today. I remember when a family friend said those words to me on that Thursday evening in 1991. Surely he heard wrong. How old is he? I hadn't seen anything on the news. However, that night on the late news... It was indeed reported. 
CNN Headline News. I'm David Goodnow. The creative genius behind the Star Trek television series is dead. Gene Roddenberry died of a heart attack at a Santa Monica, California hospital Thursday. Officials say Roddenberry collapsed at his doctor's office before being rushed to the hospital. Leonard Nimoy, who played Mr. Spock in the series, said Roddenberry had an extraordinary vision. Roddenberry died yesterday of cardiac arrest. He was 70 years old. Roddenberry used his vivid imagination to create a galaxy of characters who live on in the television shows and movies he's brought us. The actors who played those roles remember Roddenberry as a man of vision and unflagging Like the vast majority of people, I had never met him but was saddened, similar to how I felt when Lucille Ball died a couple of years earlier. Which is odd, because unlike Lucy, his was a face you rarely saw. Outside an occasional Entertainment Tonight segment, or that one time he hosted a special airing of The Cage, the previously unseen original Star Trek pilot. Still, he was one of those creators of fiction you felt like you kind of knew. In this era, his name was one of the very few TV show creators many people could name, in addition to perhaps Aaron Spelling, Glenn Larson, and Stephen Cannell. But Roddenberry's name was one that came along with a legend. I had watched Star Trek ever since coming across a fuzzy transmission of Devil in the Dark, on Houston's Channel 39 in the mid-70s. The following program is in full color on Channel 39. It was often run on Saturday afternoons. In September 1984, KINS TV in San Antonio started airing Star Trek on Saturday nights at 11 p.m. following the local news and the Twilight Zone, and I got to watch all of them in order. This local time slot was later filled by Star Trek The Next Generation, so that in one form or another, Star Trek was aired following the news on this local station for a full decade. In these teenage years, I frequented used bookstores and flea markets, found and read David Gerald's The World of Star Trek, Susan Sackett's Star Trek Speaks, as well as Whitfield's The Making of Star Trek. In 1988, I attended my first Star Trek convention, at these conventions, I would later meet and have a wonderful conversation with his widow, Majel, and later their son, Rod, during the years he was writing and filming Trek Nation. But back to 1991. In the obituaries printed in the days following the news of his death, it was widely reported he was a pilot in World War II and had worked as an airline pilot and police officer before beginning to write for television in the mid-50s. Newspaper articles would typically then go into talking about Star Trek, its movies, its fans, and the upcoming Star Trek VI due out in theaters a couple of months later. Then, a couple of years after his death, the biographies started to come out, both authorized and unauthorized, one after another after another. I devoured Roddenberry, the man who created Star Trek by Van Hise, and Gene Roddenberry, the myth and the man behind Star Trek, by Joel Engel. Later, memoirs of show cast and crew were published, and now countless retrospectives and documentaries on the production of Star Trek, series and movies, many of these giving us slices of the life of Gene Roddenberry, have been published. Incredibly, these are still coming out, and we are still learning new tidbits about both Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry well over 50 years after Trek premiered in 1966. 
By now, we've come to realize that the Star Trek we came to know and love was not really the creation of a single individual, but a result of efforts and creative input of Gene Kuhn, Bob Justman, Matt Jeffries, and others, in addition to Roddenberry's, and that many of Roddenberry's accounts he began repeating at conventions which became Star Trek production lore were a somewhat fictionalized narrative of events that tended to enhance or sweeten his contributions and ideas and dramatize his interactions and conflicts with the TV networks. Accounts which became a Star Trek mythology, endlessly repeated over the decades. And even less flattering information on his personal life came to light over the years, which is beyond the scope of what I'm presenting here. But to misquote Shakespeare and Shatner, I podcast not to condemn Roddenberry, nor to praise him, but to relate information on his lesser-known 1970s TV efforts. So, in this episode of Forgotten TV, we'll take a look at the 1973 TV movie Genesis 2 in this first installment of a PAX Trilogy retrospective, something I've had on the list to consider since first conceiving of this podcast. To do that, let's get a little more background on the man himself. Born in El Paso in 1921, Gene was a child of the 20s and came of age in the 1930s. When he was two, his family moved to Los Angeles, where his father became a patrolman for the LAPD, a position he held for 20 years. As a young child, he and his siblings were saved by an attentive milkman who noticed their house was on fire and beat on the door until they all awakened and rushed out of the burning home. He was a sickly child by his own account, and often, instead of playing outside, would be indoors playing cards or reading pulp magazines, featuring John Carter of Mars, Tarzan, or the Skylark series by E.E. E. Smith. Gene Roddenberry I remember myself as an asthmatic child, having great difficulties at seven, eight, and nine years old, falling totally in love with Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle and dreaming of having his strength to leap into trees and throw the mighty lions to the ground. There was a boy in my class who life had treated badly. He limped. He wheezed. He was a charming, intelligent person. Because of being unable to do many of the things that others were able to do, he had sort of gone into his own world of fantasy and science fiction. He had been collecting the wonderful old amazing and astounding magazines and he introduced me to science fiction. I then discovered, in our neighborhood, living above a garage, an ex-con who had come into science fiction when he was in prison. He introduced me to John Carter and those wonderful Burroughs things. By the time I was 12 or 13, I had been very much into the whole science fiction field. As a youth, his health improved, and Gene worked as a newspaper delivery boy, and as a gas station attendant on Saturdays and after school. Attending City College, he studied police science, as well as obtained a pilot's license and became the first member of his family to earn a college degree. He then signed up for the Army Air Corps, and his training was fast-tracked after the attack on Pearl Harbor and the United States entering World War II. He served as a B-17 pilot, and by his own estimate, flew 89 missions in the South Pacific, earning the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Air Medal. After his combat duty ended, he investigated aircraft crashes for the military, 
Following the war, he began to fly commercially for Pan Am. During these years, he began to write articles for flying magazines. In his aviation and military career, he survived three plane crashes. The most harrowing of these was in 1947, when a commercial Pan Am flight crashed in the Syrian desert. As the only surviving crew, he, the chief purser, and stewardess pulled people from the burning plane. Roddenberry then took charge as surviving flight officer and hiked four miles in the desert to the nearest town to radio for help. Eighteen passengers were saved. In 1949, he followed in his father's footsteps and joined the LAPD, where he was a traffic officer and later wrote press releases and speeches for the police chief. He corresponded with Perry Mason author Earl Stanley Gardner, which led to him coming to the attention of publisher Harry Steger, whose work had started the shutter pulp genre of magazine fiction. At night, he would relax in front of that new entertainment medium, television, that had been broadcasting in L.A. for only two years. L.A. Television, Los Angeles. Owned and operated by Television Productions Incorporated, a service of Paramount Pictures with studios adjoining the Paramount lot in Hollywood, transmitting from atop Mount Wilson, California, on television channel number 5, a frequency of 76 to 82 megacycles. Again tonight... We're ready to bring you a full evening of television entertainment. From now until 7 o'clock, watch the news go by and listen to recorded music as you align your receivers for best reception of KTLA. Seeking to enhance his income, he began to submit real police stories gathered from fellow officers to the producers of the Dragnet radio drama and new TV series, splitting with them the $100 payment for any stories they ended up buying. Due to his position in the Public Information Division, he was given the job of technical advisor for the TV show, Mr. District Attorney. Mr. District Attorney. Champion of the people, defender of truth, guardian of our fundamental rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it shall be my duty as District Attorney... Unknown to the department, in 1953, he also began to secretly write TV scripts under the name Robert Wesley, a combination of his brother's first name and his own middle name. His first sold TV script that we know of was in October of 1953 for the Mr. District Attorney series. One of his very early scripts was also his first science fiction piece, The Secret Defense of 117. As told by Major Barrett Roddenberry, the synopsis is something like this. Two aliens, one male, one female, arrive on a planet they've tagged as number 117, which happens to be Earth. They've come to try and find out why their predecessors, another couple, haven't taken over Earth yet. The story progresses as the newly arrived couple goes through demanding to know why, while the first couple shows them what makes Earth so great. In the end, the second couple discovers that Earth isn't such a bad place and become infected with the one defense Planet 117 has that can't be beaten, the emotion of love. It almost reads like a serious version of the Coneheads. Some sources state that this was his first TV script sold to a network. Other sources say he didn't start writing it until the end of 1954. However, 
Existing copies of this script say, December 1953, Four Star Theater, on the cover and title page. What was Four Star Theater? Well, today, you'll find it listed as Four Star Playhouse on IMDb. Welcome to the confusing early days of television. This was a filmed 30-minute anthology program on CBS, featuring four rotating stars in individual episodes. Its original intended title was Four Star Theater, based on the existing radio show. This is indicated in newspaper articles in March 1952. However, the following month, articles started calling it Four Star Playhouse, and this was the title used when it went to air in September. This name change is likely because there already was a four-star theater airing on New York's WPIX and other stations throughout the country, which would air theatrical films, as well as a four-star TV theater that had aired in 1949 and 1950 on Chicago's WGN that aired theatrical films. However, Billboard magazine and some TV listings and newspaper articles across the country still referred to this show as four-star theater. Four Star Playhouse was a four star production. This has been a four star production. Four Star Productions produced a show called Chevron Hall of Stars that was syndicated to 14 West Coast TV stations. It was this show that aired Roddenberry's sci fi script, now under the title The Secret Weapon of 117, in March 1956. It later aired in other parts of the country, when the series was repackaged and retitled in Midwest markets as Don Amici Presents in April of 1957, and again as Stage 7 on the East Coast four years later in 1961. At any rate, the surviving copies of this script show Roddenberry was at least shopping the completed script to four-star productions by the end of 1953 making this one of his earliest TV scripts. Here's a bit of Star Trek trivia for you. The Secret Weapon of 117 featured none other than Ricardo Montalban, who would famously portray that great Trek villain, Khan. Sadly, no film or video of this program seems to have ever surfaced. Roddenberry began to sell scripts to shows like Highway Patrol and I Led Three Lives, and increasingly found it difficult to write and keep his day job. Even though he had been promoted to sergeant, by 1956 he realized the money he was making from his writing hobby was earning more than twice his policeman's salary. He quit his job for the LAPD and went at it full time. After freelance writing for a number of shows like West Point Story, Boots and Saddles, and Naked City, he became a story editor and writer on Have Gun, Will Travel, the series featuring that traveling problem solver, Paladin, who relied on his wits as much as he relied on his gun. Although he liked to say he was promoted to head writer, there really was no such position. Still, he tied with Shimon Winselberg's count for the most episodes written for that show, at 24. His success led to being asked to work on other projects, one of these led to his first reported conflict with TV producers. Producers of the 1959 series Riverboat, set in Mississippi circa 1860, was ready to hire him, when according to his account, they mentioned they didn't want any black people depicted on the show. 
He states he argued against this so much, they dropped him from the job. Indeed, Riverboat never seemed to depict people of color. After getting dropped from Riverboat, soon Screen Gems had him writing multiple pilots for potential series. One of these was 1960's 333 Montgomery, which starred DeForest Kelly. He also started encountering how input by advertisers altered television content. For example, the replacement of a tire iron with a brick as a weapon to avoid casting tires in a negative light, or having dialogue changed, such as not having a character say, Ford a river, so as not to offend potential sponsors that were competitors to Ford automobiles. While doing these pilots, he also met Majel Hudek, who would later use the screen name Majel Barrett, and even later become his wife. His first series pilot that was actually picked up was The Lieutenant, starring Gary Lockwood for the 1963 fall season on NBC. It ran one season. One controversial episode tackled the subject of racial prejudice. The episode was To Set It Right, written by Lee Irwin, and it featured Don Marshall as a young black Marine, Dennis Hopper as another Marine that was a racial bigot, and Nichelle Nichols as Marshall's fiance in her first television role. It created such a stir, NBC reportedly refused to air it, and the Pentagon withdrew their support of the series. It finally aired on TNT in the early 90s. Leonard Nimoy, Ricardo Montalban, Walter Koenig, as well as Majel Barrett also appeared on The Lieutenant. This is where he also met producer Del Reisman's secretary, Dorothy Catherine Fontana. With The Lieutenant canceled, in the spring of 1964, he wrote a pitch for a TV series and began shopping it to studios, then met with Herb Solo, assistant to Vice President of Programs Oscar Katz at Desilu Studios. Katz naturally took the idea to CBS, having a long-standing relationship with them. The meeting with CBS may have been no more than a fact-finding mission for them, as they were then developing their own sci-fi series, Lost in Space. Herb Solo then took Roddenberry to a pitch meeting with NBC, where program executive Jerry Stanley admits it was Herb's tenacity and presentation that sold the series. This series was, of course, Star Trek, and Roddenberry spent the remainder of 1964 writing and producing The Cage, the original Star Trek pilot. When developing The Cage, Roddenberry and Solo rewatched Forbidden Planet, as well as the new Robinson Crusoe on Mars just hitting theaters at the time. Both films heavily influenced the concepts and production design of Star Trek. Crusoe on Mars director Brian Haskin was even brought on as associate producer, as was Matt Painter, Albert Whitlock. Paul Manti and Leslie Nielsen were both considered for the role of captain. The Cage reportedly got a lukewarm reception from test audiences and the network. Oscar Katz then offered to produce a second pilot, which could be produced at half the budget of what was already spent to produce The Cage using existing sets. In March 1965, NBC ordered this second pilot, which became Where No Man Has Gone Before, written by Samuel Peoples. Enterprise log, Captain James Kirk commanding. 
We are leaving that vast cloud of stars and planets which we call our galaxy. Behind us, Earth, Mars, Venus, even our sun are specks of dust. A question, what is out there in the black void beyond? Despite it being endlessly repeated over the decades that the series getting a second pilot produced was unprecedented, NBC had previously done just that with the series The Great Gildersleeve, Fibber McGee and Molly, and Have Camera Will Travel, all in the 1950s. Likewise, the other two networks have their own examples of this. Also, despite Roddenberry's later narrative that he had to battle NBC to feature a relatively racially diverse cast, NBC actually was encouraging the inclusion of minorities in its programs. A memo to that effect was sent to him in 1966, in which he was specifically urged to cast black actors on the show. And in the original network notes regarding the first pilot, The Cage, they said, We applaud the attempt at a racial mix. It's exactly what we want. The other bit of lore endlessly repeated about casting choices was NBC's supposed reluctance to allow a woman to be second in command on the show. However, they did specifically object to Majel Barrett's casting in this role. Jerry Stanley had identified her as Jean's girlfriend during a pre-production meeting. In those same network notes following the cage, NBC said, We support the concept of a woman in a strong leading role, but we have serious doubts as to Majel Barrett's abilities to carry the show as its co-star. To hear Roddenberry tell it for years, he kept the Vulcan and married the woman, because in California it would have been illegal to do it the other way around. NBC greenlit the series, which went on the air in September of 1966. Soon, the galaxy premiere of Star Trek, rocketing in on NBC Week. The first adult space adventure blasts off Thursday, September 15th. Star Trek went on to air for three seasons on NBC and ingeniously reused most of the footage from the cage in the two-part episode, The Menagerie. The last new episode of Star Trek aired in June of 1969. At the very beginning, I mentioned Lucille Ball, who had died just a couple years prior to Roddenberry. Well, it turns out we partially have her to thank for Star Trek's existence. Her studio, Desilu, was the original producer of the show and lost money on the production, to the tune of $15,000 per episode, with the hopes the loss would be made up in syndication, having made out so well with I Love Lucy. But during the second season, she was forced by finances to sell Desilu to Gulf and Western, who had just acquired Paramount Pictures in 1966, and Desilu was renamed Paramount Television. So what about those years between the end of Star Trek and its return as a feature film in 1979? Well, in the 1970s, before Star Trek reruns gained steam in syndication, Gene Roddenberry produced a string of TV movies and one surprising theatrical film before getting back on track with Trek for 1979's Star Trek The Motion Picture. These were years he was financially struggling. He had sold his interest in Star Trek to Paramount Studios in return for a third of the ongoing profits. But incredibly, even though Star Trek had been sold as syndicated reruns as early as 1967, 
he didn't receive profit participation revenue from this until 1983. In fact, he had already stepped away from the daily hands-on production by the third season, handing over producer responsibilities to Fred Freiberger. Even though a letter-writing campaign secretly instigated by Roddenberry himself had brought back Star Trek for that third season, NBC was forced by network politics to schedule it in a late Friday night time slot, which he correctly realized would spell the beginning of the end for the show. So, even before Star Trek originally went off the air at NBC, Roddenberry was out looking for his next project. His first After Trek project was writing a movie script for National General Pictures. During Trek's third season, he was rekindling his childhood interests, writing a script to bring a Tarzan movie to the big screen. His version would be to return to the original Edgar Rice Burroughs Victorian-era source material of having Tarzan be trained in the ways of British nobility after being rescued from his jungle life. Roddenberry's version added a superhero element to the story, having Tarzan be the secret identity of Lord John Greystoke. Interestingly, his 170-page script featured a villain in the form of an evil Arab named El Cal, an extremely obvious anagram of Cal El, the Kryptonian name of Superman. He also wrote a lot of sexual themes and situations into this script, including male and female nudity, the enthusiastic sexual awakening of the primary female character, and chained slave girls only kept for sex. Thus, we have a first glimpse of Roddenberry inserting sexual themes into his stories. The script would prove problematic for National General. As Roddenberry tells it, As you probably know by now, the Tarzan feature died at birth. It turned out in the end that National General really never had a serious interest in a motion picture box office Tarzan film. But rather, this seemed to be their way of exploring whether or not a new Tarzan television series could get on the air. As you know, this was not my interest. I wanted to do a first-class motion picture, not a television featurette. When they kept cutting the budget, they eventually reached the point where I could see that a quality film was impossible. And at that point, I killed the project. National General finally got their Tarzan picking up the distribution of the Ron Ely Tarzan TV series and repackaging episodes into a couple of Tarzan feature films. Incidentally, it turns out Gene Roddenberry is actually related to Tarzan creator Edgar Rice Burroughs. According to FamousKen.com, he is the 11th cousin, one time removed. This brings us to the first Roddenberry project of the 70s, Pretty Maids All in a Row. This is Oceanfront High, a model school with an enthusiastic faculty, a responsive student body, and real team spirit. I really want you. Hi, Tiger. My little sweet shortcake snack. Well, now, if we started doing that with our students, who knows where it would lead? Yes, I suppose there could be some, some whistling while we work. Kelly Savalas joins Rock Hudson in the pursuit of happiness. Roger Vadim, the French director who uncovered Bardot, presents his tribute to the high school girls of America. Rated R. 
Former Desilu boss Herb Solo, now vice president at MGM, brought together the director of Barbarella, Roger Vadim, together with Roddenberry and made one of the weirdest cult sex comedy slasher movies ever released by a mainstream Hollywood studio, which somehow was able to be filmed at an actual high school with actual students. Featuring porn-stashed Rock Hudson as the sexually charged serial killer, a pre-Kojak Telly Savalas as a police detective on the case, a braless Angie Dickinson as the sexed-up teacher, all too happy to privately tutor students, and 19-year-old Joanna Cameron as one of the pretty maids all in a row. Gene Roddenberry wrote the screenplay and produced this 1971 film. The story was based on a 1968 novel by Francis Pollini. It was Vadim's first American film and Gene Roddenberry's only feature film writing credit. The movie was promoted in the April issue of Playboy. Herb Solo had high hopes for the film as MGM was struggling at the time. Herb not only had Roddenberry write the screenplay, he was given the job of producer. From a modern perspective, it seems incredible. A film with a high school football coach betting and murdering underage girls could have been made. But this was the height of the sexual revolution. And Vadim and Roddenberry were initially given free reign to make the film they wanted. Although Vadim fought with MGM over the final cut. Unfortunately, the film received generally negative reviews and did not do any favors for MGM, who stopped producing feature films five years later and became essentially a hotel company. Still, the income from this project was extremely welcome for the Roddenberries. By January 1972, he was back pitching ideas to TV networks that he had developed with Samuel Peoples, including Spectre, which actually did get made as a TV movie and aired in 1977, and The Tribunes, a sci-fi police procedural that never got made. The premise was about an experimental police division, equipped with the latest scientific and technological non-lethal weapons, and the officers would also be magistrates or lay judges that could deal with minor offenses and settle cases on site. This was during an era when TV pilots were a big deal, much more so than today, and it was common at the time for the network to order one long enough to run it in a 90-minute or even a two-hour time slot. This way, it could be shown as a standalone TV movie, even if they decided not to pick it up as a series. One early 1972 series idea that got pitched to CBS was Genesis 2. The focus of the series would be on Dylan Hunt, 20th century scientist, who, through a cryogenic accident, sleeps through the next two centuries, and is awoken by PAX, an organization that maintains a subterranean shuttle train that crosses the planet. PAX is trying to bring back the better parts of civilization to lead Earth out of a second Dark Ages. Roddenberry wrote a 45-page writing guide, which proposed as many as 22 possible story ideas, which suggested pockets of civilization that had developed in eccentric ways, such as one that had reverted to the Old West, one where New York was a prison, another a civilization based on 1930s culture, or one where black people enslaved Caucasians. Yes, typical Roddenberry lack of subtlety. 
Dylan Hunt would visit one of these post-collapse civilizations each week with the subshuttle, emerging to deal with the problems of each society. Think of it as Earth Trek, if you will. If that sounds familiar, it was basically the same original concept, later presented to and rejected by William F. Nolan when he left the production of 1977's Logan's Run. Alex Cord was cast as Dylan Hunt. Marriott Hartley was Lyra Ah. On Friday, March 23, 1973, CBS aired Genesis 2 as the second half of a Friday night movie double feature. Tom Sawyer was the lead-in movie. No, this was not the Johnny Whitaker theatrical film that was currently playing. This was a Canadian-produced TV movie made to leapfrog on the popularity of that film. Genesis 2 was on against The Odd Couple and Love American Style on ABC and Ghost Story and The Bobby Darren Show on NBC. When we come back, a review of Genesis 2, as well as Behind the Scenes. This is CBS. Caught up in a strange vortex of energy during a celestial probe, the two astronauts were propelled through the time barrier. They landed 2,000 years after their takeoff on a strange continent that had once been known as Earth. From one of the most successful motion pictures ever made comes an exciting new television series, Planet of the Apes. Roddy McDowell, Ron Harper, and James Martin star in Planet of the Apes. Monday this year, the best is right here on CBS. Gunsmoke, Western drama at its finest. Then here's Lucy, who makes laughter the best way of life. Dick Van Dyke moves to Monday following Lucy to complete a great hour of comedy. And then Medical Center, with powerful human drama each Monday night. Tonight, Alex Cord wakes up 150 years in the future to a world gone mad in Gene Roddenberry's Genesis 2 on the CBS Friday Night Movie. My name is Dylan Hunt. My story begins the day on which I died. My last look at my world was to be from inside a pressure chamber at NASA's underground laboratory in Carlsbad Caverns. Support system readout, please. Pressure seal, check. Xenon mixture ready. Begin pressurizing. 
Our goal was the development of a form of suspended animation which would allow our astronauts to make longer voyages through our solar system. It had been my decision that our method was ready to test on a human, so it seemed that any risk should be mine too. I had guided the basic research since being appointed chief of the project on February 14, 1979. I arrived from Washington, D.C. on the newly completed underground sub-shuttle. Perhaps my confidence in our experiment dated from that trip. Within five years of developing a nuclear drilling device, the sub-shuttle now bridged its first continent. It seemed to me that mankind's ingenuity was capable of anything. The Continental Defense Command in Carlsbad Caverns had permitted NASA to build our laboratory in a deep grotto where constant temperatures were ideal for our experiments. By mid-year, we had slowed the aging process in test animals to the equivalent of less than one day for every 10 years of sleep. Our problem in reviving the animals was solved when we discovered a strong relationship between the will to survive and the need to reproduce. After the inevitable jokes over the possibility of male and female astronaut teams, massive injections of brain stimulants were found to work as well. By every measurement we knew of, the experiment should have gone perfectly. What we did not know was that a fault a flaw existed in the rock strata directly over our heads and that the slightest ground tremor would be enough to dislodge it. Dylan Hunt, volunteer scientist in a suspended animation chamber, is buried during a surprise earthquake for 154 years. He is found by representatives from PAX, including PAX leader Primus Isaac Cambridge. 2133. The woman, Lyra Ah, part of the PAX team who found him, is not all she seems, and is tasked with Dylan's care and reviving him. When he awakens, she explains some of the current politics of the day and what has transpired. What is this place? They call themselves PAX. Peace. To fool others. Actually, they're descendants of the soldiers who made war from here. You keep saying they, you, you're not Pax? You must promise not to give me away. I was sent here and pretended to join them so that I can warn others who Pax might attack. I'm a mutant. We Terranians have two hearts greater strength 
superior to humans in almost every way. You don't say. Lyra Ah reveals her midriff with two navels, vertically arranged one above the other. She later takes him on a tour of the Pax headquarters, and Dylan discovers how Pax has stored away great treasures of art and literature of the past, and he is fed a false narrative by Lyra Ah regarding the intentions of Pax. Taken to the surface, he is shown a surface world that seemingly has recovered from a nuclear war. But Lyra Ah describes a fractured world that struggles to operate. The ancestors of Pax then took power. Many scientists were killed as traitors. Your teachers and technicians tried to save them, and a great frenzy of killing began. Without scientists and teachers, your machines began to rust. Men began to fight for water and food. Your great technology had been too... Too complex, too fragile, I know. Without oil, the wheels stop. Without wheels, the factories stop. Without factories, food transport stops. Earth isn't finished, Dylan. It's only different. In some ways, perhaps even better. Lyra Ah is reassigned, and PAX citizen Harper Smythe is assigned to care for Dylan. And he gets lectured about the lustful tendencies of the past. I'm Harper Smythe. I have been assigned Lyra Ah's duties. That's a tall order. There is a girl under that. What importance is that? Would the shape of my liver or pancreas interest you? Perhaps. I know why you ask that. Because all the people in your century were ruled by lust. I thought you were taking over my nurse's duties. Lyra Ah always tucked me in. You are a scientist and yet you do not understand that lust destroyed your world. That is an interesting theory. It is a fact. Most of your world's problems were caused by aggression between male and female. Just how many of you people feel this way? Well, the great part of Pax is of the unisex persuasion. Outside, of course, primitives and barbarians continue in the same old errors. Oh. Well, um, thank heaven I'm safe here. In the cover of night, Lyra Ah breaks into Dylan's room and rescues him from Pax, taking him to the subshuttle to her city of Tyrania, continuing to feed him falsehoods about Pax. At a way station in Arizona, Dylan gets his first glimpse of another side of Lyra Ah when coming into contact with a group of apparent savages clad in animal skins. The people seem fearful and subservient to Lyra Ah. The next day, riding into Tyrania, Dylan encounters the clean, well-clothed Tyranian people, carrying what look like ceremonial batons. He also sees more ordinary-looking humans that seem of smaller stature and plainly clothed in servant attire, who she describes as helpers. Arriving home, Dylan sees she has a number of servants. Lyra Ah refers to the baton as the stem, which her people believes confers dignity. Dylan is then exposed to the life of leisure the Tyranian mutants live in, thanks to the human servant class, which Lyra Ah insists is an arrangement beneficial to them. 
What continues to trouble you, Dylan? That they serve us so well? It's their damned eagerness to please. They love us, just as an animal pet returns love, given it. They're humans, Lyra. Astrid, are you happy here? Happy, Master? I was ill and starving until I came here. They're fortunate humans, Dylan. And they recognize it. Late at night, Dylan leaves to explore Terrania on his own and encounters a team of PAX agents who offer a different story of PAX and Terrania. Those are new helpers, recently captured. This is what one PAX team is doing. Two of us have already died planning a rebellion. If necessary, all of us will if we can save them. And several thousand like them. Later, challenging the Terranian rulers with what he now knows, he is shown the real face of Terrania and the real purpose of the stems. Human, welcome to the ranks of the helpers. You will take the position of respect and express gratitude. It'll be a cold day in hell when I kneel at your feet. That was the lightest pain setting. There are eight higher. You will take the position of respect. Dylan is taken to training school, but is rescued by the PAX agents, including Harper Smythe. Dylan reconfigures an old radio to detect the stem sticks and convinces the PAX agents to help him find where the stem sticks are warehoused, which they find and collect, instigating a rebellion of the enslaved humans. And the PAX team, along with Dylan, escapes the city. On the run away from the city, they surprisingly encounter Lyra Ah, who convinces Dylan to stay behind to repair their failing nuclear power plant in exchange for allowing the PAX team to leave unharmed. As we know, six days ago, the man from the past unfortunately agreed to repair the Terranian nuclear generator. But he agreed to help them in order to save the lives of the team who rescued him. Because of this, Dominic was asked to immediately dispatch a second team to the area. Primai, I have just received a report from that team. I'm afraid it's much worse than was feared. They've discovered a missile site which with full generator power, they will be able to use against us. These missiles are capable of carrying a bomb designed to penetrate and destroy soldiers who once fought from here. We have a few weeks, perhaps, before they learn to use them. No more. Dylan arrives at PAX headquarters from his repair mission, and he reveals to the Premi what he has done. In addition to repairing the power station, 
he found they were also preparing to power a missile complex. He had set one of the warheads on a timed delay, blowing up the power station in a nuclear fireball, leaving Terrania powerless and without the means to make war on other groups. This disappoints the Premi greatly, who chastise him for taking lives, no matter the reason. There's a question we must ask you. Did you take lives? A couple of technicians, certainly. More if they were there hooking power to the silos. There were thousands of lives at stake right here. If we trade one life for a thousand, couldn't we justify a hundred for more? Perhaps 10,000 for still more? That same reasoning destroyed your world, Dylan Hunt. I've just saved everything you've fought over 150 years for. If you join us, Dylan Hunt, you must swear to give your life or any of our lives rather than take another. Well, I'm not sure I've got that kind of guts, Primus. We all must, this time. As the shockwave passes over them, Dylan agrees, and with the fate of Lyra Ah unknown, shifts his romantic interest to Harper Smythe. All right. Only the best of the past. And I hope I'm up to it. How are you as a guide, Harper Smythe? I'd like to see more of Pax now. Do you like children, Dylan Hunt? Why, is this a proposal, Harper Smythe? Of course not. Pity. I bet you've got a great pancreas. Despite its anti-war messaging and Roddenberry's interesting take on the stoic, gender-neutral world of Pax, many elements of this film are simply cringeworthy and disappointing from a modern perspective especially the male sexual fantasy elements written in, and how much of the plot revolves around the sexual interests of the male character and his suggestive comments, more of which I'll cover later. Pax also displayed inconsistent beliefs, as the agents unleashed the entire human servant class against the Terranians, which more than likely resulted in deaths, but objected to the few technicians at the power plant being killed by Dylan's explosion. It is interesting that, had this been picked up as a series, Roddenberry would have gotten a jump on the 1970s Civilization of the Week series format that became popular with Planet of the Apes, The Fantastic Journey, Logan's Run, and later In Otherworld and Sliders. Of course, this is simply an earthbound adaptation of what Roddenberry had already done on Star Trek, which itself was modeled after Wagon Train. Behind the Scenes The Genesis 2 concept perhaps owes a bit to Philip Francis Nolan's original 1928 Buck Rogers story, Armageddon 2419 AD. Buck Rogers was trapped in a cave-in for 500 years, while Dylan Hunt is trapped for 150. Roddenberry also admits he was inspired by James Hilton's Lost Horizon. It was a society of people who said, let us preserve the books and knowledge until man is ready to come back. When Rome fell, 
there was no one to preserve their society and culture, and within a short while, villages a hundred miles apart hardly spoke the same language. Genesis 2 earned respectable ratings for CBS and tied for 18th place that week, along with ABC's The Rookies. It was repeated on June 22nd. Pre-production started in spring of 1972 as a Warner Brothers and Norway production. Norway was Gene Roddenberry's production company. CBS, along with Warner, had funded the production at over a million dollars over a three-month period. This included additional footage shot to lengthen the film for international theatrical release, which was becoming common for TV movies at the time. Some 15 to 18 minutes were reportedly added. Sadly, these extra scenes have never been seen in the U.S., and it may be that no prints or film elements of them still exist. John Llewellyn Moxie was chosen to direct. He started directing television in the mid-50s and had helmed episodes of The Saint, Mission Impossible, as well as the Night Stalker TV movie. He went on to have 101 directing credits by the time he retired in 1991. Alex Cord had the lead role. He became best known in Hollywood for his 60s and 70s work in action-adventure. He had been on around 20 TV shows by this time, including Naked City, Route 66, and Night Gallery. He recalled meeting Gene Roddenberry. I read somewhere that Star Trek was responsible for Gene Roddenberry being worth a billion dollars. So when my agent called with an offer to do a pilot for a TV series written by Mr. Roddenberry, it did not take me long to agree to meet him at his office on the Warner Brothers lot. He was very friendly, charming, with a forceful presence. I liked him. I thought the premise of Genesis 2 was interesting, and the script he'd written was first class. He'd also put together a group of fine actors, including my pal Marriott Hartley from the American Shakespeare Festival. My only gripe was the goofy costume I was required to wear. We all had high hopes as we went to work and came up with a finished product that we felt was excellent. Apparently, it was not excellent enough for the powers that be to buy it as a series. Yes, Mariette Hartley was Lyra Awe, Dylan Hunt's Tyranian love interest. She had already appeared on well over 30 TV shows and nine films by this time, including the 1969 Star Trek episode All Our Yesterdays, as well as the films The Return of Count Yorga and The Magnificent Seven Ride. The recognizable Ted Cassidy was PAX agent Isaiah. Harvey Jason was Singh. Star Trek alum Percy Rodriguez was PAX leader Primus Isaac Cambridge. And Roddenberry's now wife, Majel Barrett, appeared as PAX leader Primus Dominic. Harry Sukman composed the somewhat underwhelming music score for Genesis 2. He would go on to score Planet Earth, the next attempt to bring Dylan Hunt to screen. Sukman scored the 1954 sci-fi film Gog and had worked with Roddenberry before on The Lieutenant and the unsold pilot 333 Montgomery Street and had been considered to score the first Star Trek pilot, The Cage, losing that job to Alexander Courage. The final credit for Sukman was 1979's Salem's Lot. Star Trek costume designer William Ware Tice was brought on for Genesis 2. The PAX costumes were plain and bland, 
and the outfits worn by the leaders looked downright ascetic and uncomfortable. Of course, this was intentional, as Pax rejected sensual pleasures. The Tyrrhenian civilization's costumes' origins were based on those of ancient Greece and were essentially chitons, cloth tunics held together with pins. In addition, those of the ruling class wore hymations, or additional cloaks. In addition, there were a couple of Lyra Oz outfits that were a little more revealing. Yes, Tice was most famous for creating alluring female costuming that got around censor demands, employing what came to be called the Tice titillation theory, which was the sexiness of an outfit is directly proportional to the perceived possibility that a vital piece of it might fall off. Bill Tice died in 1992 at age 61. In addition to filming at Warner's Burbank Studios, location shoots for Lyra Oz Tyranian City was at the UC Riverside campus right in the LA area. The Rivera Arches Carillion Mall and Bell Tower are clearly visible in several scenes. Unfortunately, I failed to find significant information on the great full-size sub-shuttle set. This was evidently built on a Warner soundstage. The set was based on concept art by Minter Hebner, production illustrator for the movie. His official website states that he worked on some 250 films, from 1940's The Shop Around the Corner to 1999's The End of Days. Many of these uncredited and have not been entered into IMDb. These include the films Ben-Hur, George Powell's The Time Machine, Planet of the Apes, Soylent Green, Flash Gordon, and the post-apocalyptic Damnation Alley. Regarding the sub-shuttle concept, Roddenberry said, I am particularly proud of the subterranean shuttle system we designed for the show. In the year 1979, as we explain in the series, air and sea travel had become no longer safe. So this underground super subway was designed to link the continents. The tunnels are bored through solid rock by a laser, and the car moves at hundreds of miles per hour, powered by a nuclear engine. When we mapped the design, we wanted to know how scientifically accurate we were, so we went to Caltech to check out the plans with a few scientists we often consult on such matters. You can imagine our surprise when they told us that our wonderful invention had already passed the prototype stage for real. It is most likely he was referring to the Planetran, a RAND Corporation concept to connect the USA coast-to-coast with a vacuum tunnel that would theoretically make possible a non-stop 21-minute New York to L.A. trip. The VacTrain concept had been around a long time. Jules Verne's son Michael imagined such a system submerged under the Atlantic Ocean connecting the two landmasses. It is very likely Roddenberry read a 1972 L.A. Times article on the Planetran and incorporated some of these concepts. This general concept has been resurrected by Elon Musk as the Hyperloop. CBS had optioned Genesis 2 for a series, and it was rumored they suggested a major casting change. And it was reported ABC also expressed interest in a Genesis 2 series, should CBS drop the option. For a time, it seemed Genesis 2 was destined to air on the following year's fall season. It turns out, 
CBS ultimately rejected Genesis 2 as a series, opting instead for another science fiction show. In April 1973, they successfully negotiated broadcast rights for the Planet of the Apes film series, the last of which had still to be released theatrically. On September 14, 1973, the original Planet of the Apes film premiered on CBS to even better ratings than Genesis 2. They decided to give Planet of the Apes a series with a very similar concept. Gene Roddenberry wasn't pleased, and later said, Genesis 2 was penciled into the CBS schedule last year, but although it was the highest-rated movie of the week that they had, before we could get on the air, they put on the motion picture Planet of the Apes, and it played to such a high rating, they erased us and put that on. I suspect they're sorry now they did it. We tried to tell them that once this one-joke thing of apes acting like humans got tiresome, where are they going to go? I was sorry to see it go. I thought Genesis 2 had the area for stories and comment very similar to Star Trek, but I'm afraid that it's dead. Who at CBS made this decision? None other than TV executive Fred Silverman. Roddenberry minced no words criticizing the former head of programming for his short-sightedness. It's a tragedy that opportunities like this to do exciting things and to talk about exciting things are pulled out by the roots by business executives that have no desire at all to give writers, directors, and actors a chance to explore and elevate the art of film and television. And it could have been more exciting than the monkeys which captured his attention, but he seemed to be incapable of looking beyond and seeing the potential of something new and different. Sexual Undertones in Genesis 2 There was something subtly implied in the movie regarding the reawakening of Dylan Hunt, something easily missed by a casual viewing. In Hunt's initial voiceover, he says, Our problem with reviving deep brainstem instincts led to our discovery of the close interrelationship of the will to survive and to reproduce. After the inevitable jokes over the possibility of mixed astronaut teams, Massive injections of the brain stimulant zelectamine were found to be the answer. Since medical compounds were against the beliefs of Pax, Hunt begs Lyra Ah to make him want to live. Lyra Ah read the old lab records and realized what he meant. The will to live was deeply tied to the will to reproduce, as Dylan put it. To save his life, he was put in her care. Without the drugs, the implication is that she restored his will to live, sexually. Which brings us to Genesis 2 and female navels. In Genesis 2, as Gene's script proudly exclaims and underlines, Lyra Ah has two perfectly formed navels, one centered above the other. TV network censors have been somewhat uneven in their allowance of the female navel to be shown. They were initially taking their cues from the motion picture Hayes Code, enforced from the mid-30s to the late 60s, which forbade the naked female navel from being shown on film. This was sometimes skirted with the technique of gluing a jewel on it, as seen in several films of the 50s, and later was sometimes ignored, such as when both Marilyn Monroe and Ursula Andress bared theirs in Something's Got to Give and Dr. No, 
1962. Despite the urban legend that Annette Funicello was contractually obligated to cover hers in Beach Party the following year, she did this out of respect to Walt Disney instead of some Disney edict. Even so, her navel was on display by the time 1964's Muscle Beach Party rolled around. In 1951, the National Association of Broadcasters established its Code of Practices for Television Broadcasters. Amongst many other things, the regulations prohibited the display of a woman's navel. This code incredibly stood in place until 1983. Even though this taboo was first broken in 1964 by Yvette Mimieux on Dr. Kildare. However, Don Wells, Tina Louise, and Barbara Eden famously had to cover theirs on their respective shows throughout the remainder of the 60s. There is an even longer history of the female navel being censored. In early photographs, it was common for it to be painted out, thinking it was far too suggestive of other parts of the anatomy. This gives Lyra Awe and her double circulatory system with two navels potentially added innuendo. Don't laugh. Fourteen years later, Roddenberry wanted to give Counselor Troy four breasts. Look it up. The long-repeated story was that Marriott Hartley was not allowed to show her navel on the Trek episode All Our Yesterdays, supposedly due to this not being allowed at the time, as we've covered. However, there are a number of episodes where female navels are present. One of these was Mirror Mirror, where the evil versions of the characters wore alternate uniforms, and Uhura's was a two-piece. The story is that Star Trek superfan B. Joe Trimble, who was instrumental in the letter-writing campaign, had gone to a long lunch with the Network Standards and Practices rep, and the exposed Uhura belly button was thus missed. I'm not sure how credible that explanation is, as it still leaves a number of unexplained instances of female navels on other episodes of Star Trek. However, it is true Marriott Hartley's was not exposed on her episode, and her character was given to on Genesis 2. Marriott Hartley I played a girl with two navels in the TV movie Genesis 2. I thought it was going to make me the sex symbol of Los Angeles. It didn't work out that way. I remember, though, I was going with a guy who really got turned on by those two navels. I was glad they could be applied very quickly. However, in another interview in 2011 for StarTrek.com, she related her makeup for this took three hours. The earlier quote, though, was from a 1982 Playboy interview, so her statements there should probably be viewed with a filter as to the intended reader. Roddenberry always maintained the double navels of Genesis 2 was in retaliation for all the supposed times it wasn't allowed on Star Trek, and he was known to say, the network owed me one, even though he was dealing with a completely different network. Majel Barrett confirms, It was his revenge. After years of dealing with stressed-out censors on Star Trek, by the time of Genesis 2, the networks were more relaxed. Another element of Genesis 2 with sexual undertones were the way the Turanians kept control over their slaves. This was done with Turanian stem sticks, which stimulated the pain or pleasure centers of the recipient's brain through the use of sonics. No physical damage was caused by the stem's effect. 
In the story, the stem was developed in the final days of the Great Conflict to control troops and civilian populations. In Terrania, the stem was regarded as a symbol of honor and conferred dignity. It was depicted as capable of eight degrees of pain, and possibly eight degrees of pleasure, although this was not specifically stated. The masters gave slaves pain or pleasure with a not very subtle eight-inch rod with a rounded end that extended out of a handle. There is even a scene that almost threatened to border on the homoerotic, where one of the scantily-dressed male Turanian masters was wanting to educate Dylan Hunt with the stem stick, because, as he said, he interests me. Remember, this was in a society where the slave class enabled the masters leisure to explore the sensual liberties enjoyed by the ruling class. The stem stick was somewhat reminiscent of Star Trek's Agonizer from the Mirror Universe. Your Agonizer, please. No, Mr. Spock! Sixteen years later, the general concept returned yet again on Roddenberry's Star Trek The Next Generation as the Klingon pain stick. The Turanian stem sticks used to keep the human slaves in line pop up occasionally at auctions. In one scene, it looked like about 30 dummy props were made for the movie. However, out of the possibly four working hero props with the ceremonial camouflage handle, only one remains that is still known to work. This last working prop was acquired from the estate sale of costume designer William Ware Teese who had also held on to the medallions worn around the necks of the Pax leaders featuring the Dove of Peace. Roddenberry must have had fun getting all these plot elements on screen, giving the troubles he had had with NBC's Broadcast Standards Department, which he called the BS Department, due to the often petty nature of their revisions during the Star Trek years. For decades, Lincoln Enterprises was a mail-order company run by the Roddenberries that sold Star Trek merchandise, such as actual film frames from the cutting room floor, copies of scripts, bumper stickers, and so on. This included unproduced scripts for a Genesis 2 series. Reportedly, 22 of these were written by Roddenberry, and here are descriptions for seven that I found. Company B a Trojan horse suicide squad from the days of the Great Conflict comes out of suspended animation and attacks Pax. They represent the 1995 A.D. ideal of a perfect soldier. London Express A hair-raising journey through the submerged portions of the North Atlantic subshuttle tube to mysterious London of 2133 A.D. Dylan Hunt and Team 21 meet Lyra Awe there, as well as the mad monarch, King Charles X. Robots Return The advanced computers and sophisticated machinery left on a moon of Jupiter by a 1992 NASA expedition have evolved into a new form of robot life and visit Earth in search of the God which created their life. They meet Dylan Hunt, formerly of NASA, and consider him a messiah. This story idea was later developed into the script for Star Trek The Motion Picture, and it also shares thematic similarities to The Changeling, the Star Trek original series story 
Written by John Meredith Lucas Poodle Shop Dylan Hunt is captured and put on sale by the females in a strange society where men are treated as domestic pets and often traded back and forth for breeding purposes. This story idea would later turn into the second pilot, Planet Earth. The Apartment Trapped inside 20th century ruins by a mysterious force field, Hunt is catapulted through a time continuum back to 1975, where he can be seen as a transparent ghost by the girl living in the apartment there. A bizarre love affair with a surprise twist ending ensues. The basic plot later appears as an unused Star Trek Phase Two episode, Tomorrow and the Stars. The Electric Company Dylan Hunt and his PAX team encounter a place where a strong priesthood holds a society in bondage through the clever use of electricity. The simple inhabitants see flashes of light and the amplified voices as the sight and sound of God. But Dylan's team ends the dominance of their priesthood when they come up with still better tricks. This episode somewhat resembles the Star Trek episode Return of the Archons. Who Dreams of Ivy? Dylan Hunt accepts the post of leader of an isolated community in order to accomplish his PAX mission, only to discover too late that this honor is accorded only to criminals and strangers will end in his sacrifice by a people who bitterly remember corrupt rulers as the cause for the great conflict. With his fellow agents held hostage, Dylan's only hope is to make himself seem irreplaceable, even at the cost of intrigue, deception, and the tyrant's trick of creating scapegoats. Genesis 2 would be aired on the CBS Late Movie four times in 1974, 1984, and 1985. In 1997, and again in 1998, it aired on TNT's Monster Vision. It was also syndicated by Warner Brothers Television and would pop up on weekend afternoon or late night movies on local stations. I don't find any record of it being released to home video until it was released in 2009 by the Warner Archive as a bare-bones, print-on-demand DVD-R. It was mastered from the best available sources Warner Brothers had, likely the same one-inch analog broadcast master tapes used to originally distribute the film in syndication. But no attempts at restoring the film were made. The quality is perfectly acceptable for an early 70s TV movie and significantly better than the home-recorded VHS captures found on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, I don't know if I'd recommend buying it on DVD, but it is currently available on digital rental from YouTube, iTunes, and Vudu at time of this recording. But the story doesn't end there. Remember how ABC expressed interest in Genesis 2 if CBS ended up passing on the option? Well, it turns out ABC asked Roddenberry to retool the concept and make a second pilot film. For some reason, this sounds very familiar, which ended up becoming 1974's Planet Earth. The story continues on the next podcast. Forgotten TV Memorial A friend of mine was working for Roger Corman, and he had to drop something off, and I said, can I go with you? 
The first film Dick and I worked on together was Apache Woman. Dick Miller was an essential part of those early Corman films. Dick Miller arrives in whatever scene. Hire Dick Miller. I'll write him a part for the picture. Yeah, he said I was going to shoot my ear off. That ain't nice. When Dick walked in the room, it was like, oh, I know this guy. Ready for the question from behind the magic hole board? I kept seeing Dick Miller everywhere. What he was was the underdog who rises to the occasion and conquers. The king of bit part and character actors, Dick Miller, has died at age 90. Without a doubt, one of the most prolific actors ever. He was Herb Denning on Matinee, Murray Futterman on Gremlins, Charlie Drake on Explorers, not to mention Policewoman, Soap, Alice, Amazing Stories, The Flash, Erie, Indiana. Many of his credits aren't even on IMDb. He was so prolific. The World War II veteran originally tried to make it as a writer, but when Roger Corman told him he didn't need any scripts, he needed actors, Miller replied, Fine, I'm an actor. Indeed. Legendary screamer Julie Adams, known for Creature from the Black Lagoon, has died at age 92. In the Forgotten TV era, she appeared on Night Gallery, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Dan August, Quincy, Code Red, and Search, among dozens of other TV appearances. They sacrificed hundreds just to draw us out in the open. And then they came, and they came. They drained four of our phasers, and they still came. They killed thousands, and they still came. Actor, pilot, and all-around cool cowboy Morgan Woodward has died at age 93. Born in Fort Worth, Texas, he served in the U.S. Army Corps during World War II, attended college where he studied music and drama, and later business and law. His studies were interrupted by the Korean War as he was recalled to active duty. Following the war, Woodward starred in Walt Disney's first full-length live-action motion picture, The Great Locomotive Chase. Disney signed him for two more films, and also started appearing on TV westerns in the late 1950s, including his first regular series role as Shotgun Gibbs on 81 episodes of The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp. From then on, he was a regular face on television. Wagon Train, Daniel Boone, Cimarron Strip, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, appearing on these series multiple times, even appearing twice on Star Trek. He also appeared as Boss Godfrey, the man in the mirrored glasses, in 1967's Cool Hand Luke. Listeners may recall he was the elder Morgan on TV's Logan's Run. Catherine Helmond has died at age 89. Her career developed during the 1970s, and most of us became aware of her when she was cast in 1977's Soap. She remained a fixture on television throughout the remainder of the 80s on 196 episodes of Who's the Boss, returning in the 90s on Coach and Everybody Loves Raymond. 
Luke Perry, who played favorite character Dylan McKay on the hit coming-of-age series Beverly Hills 90210, has shockingly died at age 52. He reportedly suffered a massive stroke and failed to recover. In addition to his more recent roles, his first role was a non-speaking one on Voyagers. He was also immortalized in a 1993 Simpsons episode as Krusty's worthless half-brother, Sideshow Luke Perry. Jan Michael Vincent, primarily known for his portrayal of Stringfellow Hawk on the 80s show Airwolf, has died at age 74. Vincent first appeared in a bit part on The Hardy Boys, The Mystery of the Chinese Junk, a 1967 TV pilot. He was a minor film and TV actor for years before coming to many people's attention in the 1983 TV miniseries The Winds of War, before being cast in the role he would be best remembered for in 1984's Airwolf. Next time on Forgotten TV. We conclude our look at Gene Roddenberry's 1970s PAX TV movies with Planet Earth and Strange New World. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Want more Forgotten TV? Become a producer on Patreon and gain access to even more background information on Gene Roddenberry's projects, such as the full details of that outrageous, unfilmed Tarzan script, and information that didn't make it into the show. Forgotten TV shortcasts, additional supplemental podcasts on this and future show topics, coming soon for Patreon supporters. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with CBS, NBC, Warner Brothers, Warner Archive, ITC Entertainment, Paramount Studios, or any production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Greg Blanchard, with associate producer K.L. Young and production assistant Martin. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making audio clips in this episode possible. Ray Glasser, Celestic, KHCW, Caspar Politman, Logic Smash, Doug Quick, Johnny L80, Mike Jones Draws, Gary Malone, 1701, Videoholic, 50s, 60s, 70s, Movie Clips, Classic Trailers, Lawgiver, Vintage Television. Sources of quotes and background information are from the books. Gene Roddenberry, The Man Who Created Star Trek by Van Heis. Gene Roddenberry, The Myth and the Man Behind Star Trek by Joel Engel. Inside Star Trek by Herb Solo and Robert Justman. TV Party by Billy Ingram. The Impossible Has Happened, The Life and Work of Gene Roddenberry by Lance Parkin. Star Trek Creator, The Authorized Biography of Gene Roddenberry by David Alexander. Starlog Magazine, Issue 51, as well as vintage newspaper articles. And the websites, Star Trek Fact Check, TV Obscurities, TrekMovie.com, 
John Kenneth Muir's From the Archives, Cracked Rear Viewer, ERB Zine, The Trek BBS. Remember to support Forgotten TV on Patreon or with PayPal. Links right here in the show notes. Be sure and like the Forgotten TV Facebook page and follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Visit Forgotten.tv for all content and links. This podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Chris Cooling. And this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.